Ian Dale is an award-winning radio presenter, political commentator, blogger, newspaper columnist, author, panellist on my show CNN Talk, and one of the busiest people I know. He joined LBC in 2010, since when the talk radio station has experienced a renaissance. He's presented election night shows and the coverage of the referendums on Scottish independence and Brexit. He currently hosts the evening show and a weekly podcast with former Home Secretary Jackie Smith called For the Many, plus the Ian Dale Book Club podcast and also a podcast of his weekly cross-question political panel show. Until June 2018, he was Managing Director of Britain's leading political publisher, Biteback Publishing, and has written or edited a string of his own books. In a previous life, Ian was a parliamentary researcher and Chief of Staff to Senior Conservative and Brexiteer David Davis. He was a political lobbyist, financial journalist and once stood for Parliament, but has now given up active politics and took time to speak to me about his rise to success despite his battle with imposter syndrome. Ian, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, I've been looking forward to this. Yes, so we're going to see where it takes us, because it's in the early stages. But I'm interested in what makes uh, people tick, I suppose, successful people, how they feel that they became successful and what drove them. And you're most famous as a broadcaster, I think twice radio broadcaster of the year, is that right? 2013 and 2016. Which is the, you know, the... You and know, I can never do it again because uh, they don't enter us in for awards anymore, so that's it. <laughs> but that's the peak of your career, right? So you reached it at that point. Yeah, it, it's really weird. How do you define success? Because I still have a lot of imposter syndrome. I can't quite believe I'm doing what I'm doing. And I've never really thought about myself as being successful. I, I don't know why that is, because I think a lot of people look at me and they, they think, well, he's on CNN talk, he must be successful. Um, I've, I've run various companies in my life, none of which have actually really made any serious money. So is that, is that successful? I, I, I don't know. Um, I feel I'm at a point in my life where I'm at my happiest, and I think happiness does often correlate to having some degree of success and I mean I'm on the radio four days a week I do CNN talk three days a week do lots of other broadcasting stuff so so from a broadcasting view viewpoint I suppose I am at my most successful but I, I never really look at it in those terms uh, that's presumably what continues to drive you because you're incredibly busy and you produce a huge amount of content uh, there must be something driving you uh, do you know what that is um, I suppose I've, I've got things to say and all the avenues that I pursue, whether it's radio, television, um, my website, my blog, my Twitter, that gives me the opportunity to. Um, sometimes I regret saying things because, I mean, as you know, on social media, you're never going to get universal mm. uh, acclaim for whatever you say or do. Um, what drives me? Uh, money to a certain extent i'll be quite honest about that because i've never had a lot of money people look at me and think with what i do i must be incredibly rich and all the rest of it well i'm not incredibly rich i mean how do you how do you define that for me being incredibly rich is somebody who doesn't really have to worry how much they spend and when they spend it well i've never been in that position i'm not in that position now on the other hand um, I've got two houses, so that mm. people would say, well, that means you must be rich. But I never feel 
as if I'm financially that well off. I suppose I'm better off now than I ever have been in my life. But shouldn't that be the case for everybody as they go through their life, I suppose? Um, so it is partly the need to earn money and a, a reasonable amount of it to keep the lifestyle that I like. And look, I don't have a lavish lifestyle. My only excess is my car. I love cars, um, so I drive a nice car. But I don't go out an awful lot. I don't go out to expensive restaurants particularly. Um, I don't go on expensive holidays. So um, I allow my, my car as my one luxury. Um, I think... Look, all broadcasters have egos as well. Let's let's be honest about it. You wouldn't be on screen. You wouldn't um, be on the radio for three hours a day if there wasn't a degree of ego. I like talking. I like talking to people, um, which is just as well doing a predominantly a phone-in show, or at least partially a phone-in show nowadays. Um, you can always learn from people, and there are often times when you start off a subject on the radio with one view, and you end the hour with having a rather different view because people challenge you. And it's not an echo chamber, whereas so often uh, we do live in our own echo chambers. Mm. We, we have friends who we might agree with mo more than people that we don't. And so it's good to be challenged. Um, did you grow up with a lot of money? No. Um, again, this is... My father and mother were farmers. They owned their own farm, but not, not a big farm, 220 acres. But of course, people think, well, if you have land, therefore you are rich. Um, in theory, nowadays, with the price of land, I suppose that's true, but it never felt like that. We, we never went on any holidays as children. I'm not saying we were poor, um, but I mean, farming in this country, particularly on a small farm, you, you don't make an awful lot of money. And my father regarded it not as a business, but as a vocation, because all of his wider family and indeed my mother's family had always been involved in farming. And if I had been born 10 years before I was, I'm sure I would now be a farmer as well. But I knew from the age of probably six or seven that I wasn't going to be a farmer. And I was the first person in not just in my family, but my wider family to actually break out of farming. And what I, was the decision behind that? Do you remember your emotions? Well, I do, that? because Everyone would always say, oh, you're going to be a farmer when you grow up, because I was the oldest son, so the oldest son normally takes over the farm. But I just knew it wasn't for me. Why? I didn't get out of it what I knew that my father did. Mm. And he and I, though we always got on really well, would have been a nightmare working together, because I would have looked at it as, as a business. Um, whereas he just, he enjoyed ploughing, he enjoyed mm. the combine harvesting, which actually I, I liked that bit as well. Um, but I just knew that I wanted to do something else with my life. I didn't know what until I got to high school. Then I decided I wanted to be a teacher. So all of my thinking was, well, how do I become a teacher rather than be a farmer? Because going to agricultural college was effectively what I was supposed to do. But I was hopeless at all of the subjects that you needed to do to do that. Biology, chemistry, physics. Couldn't just get my head mm. around any of them. And I wanted to teach German. German was the only thing at school that I really was quite good at after a while. Um, and I think it then dawned on my parents, well, that's not going to happen. And to their eternal credit, they never put pressure on me. I know cousins of mine, friends of mine who were involved in farming, they had enormous pressure to follow in their family's footsteps. I never had that. And... Uh, if I'm great, well, I'm grateful to my parents for all sorts of things, but that's certainly one of them. And they've su they supported me in everything I did. When I announced I wanted to go on a gap year to Germany, which in 1980 was quite a thing. I mean, nobody, I can't remember any of my friends doing gap years. 
but I thought, well, it's going to stand me in good stead. It's going to enable me to grow up, live live on my own. And I remember getting leaving my parents at Harwich to go on the ferry to the Hook of Holland and walking up an escalator. And my mother was in floods of tears at the bottom of the escalator. I was in floods of tears going up it. And she told me a few years later that she genuinely thought she'd never see me again. And um, it was... It, it was the year that, that turned me into an adult. And when I went to university the next year, I was a bit different from all of my cohort because they hadn't done gap years and they were still had this sort of school age mentality. And I naturally gravitated to the two or three mature students that were in my, my year group rather than um, the others. So that year in Germany had a real profound effect on me. So was the big decision, do you think, the brave decision, the decision you made at six or seven not to go into farming, or was it that decision to go abroad? I'm not sure it was a brave decision. It was just something that I knew that... I, I knew I wasn't going to get what I wanted from life from farming. And I felt incredibly but guilty. if you're born into it, as you say, as the oldest child, oh. it's quite, you have to make a big decision yourself, and it's quite a bold thing to do at such a young age. Maybe, but that didn't dominate my thoughts. I thought of my cousin Richard, who is my father's brother's eldest son. Um, he loved farming, but his father rented a farm and didn't own it, and there was no way that he could then take it over. And that feeling still is still with me today, that I think if, if we had sort of swapped, mm. I mean, he would have had the opportunity that he wanted in life, and I'm not saying he's, I mean, he's had a great life, but I've always felt slightly guilty that he didn't get to do what he really wanted to do. And for the most part in my life, I have done what I wanted to do. Um, was it scary going to Germany, particularly with your mother reacting like that? <laughs> it wasn't scary as such, because I was going to the family that I'd um, stayed with uh, on a school exchange. And the mother of that family, I kind of regarded as my German mother. Um, and we got on fantastically well. So I went to the same town in Germany, Bad Wildungen, which was a spa town. And after about three weeks, I still hadn't found a job. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to go back and with my toe between my legs. But I eventually got a job, um, believe it or not, as a nursing assistant in a paraplegic hospital. And I worked in the swimming pool area. And in the end, I was doing physiotherapy, looking after the patients. I had no training whatsoever to do any of this. But it meant that at the end of the year, I was fluent, more or less fluent in German, to the extent that they, the Germans didn't actually realize I was English. Amazing. Um, when I look back, I didn't really do any traveling. I had a car for the last few months, but I didn't really take, make the most of it. And then I did another year in Germany in the middle of my degree. Um, and again, I didn't travel enough. I think of all the things I could and should have done. Um, but I was fluent in German. And one of, my, one of my few regrets in life is that I really haven't had an opportunity to use it much. And um, I went back to Germany three or four years ago to stay with this family again. And I was absolutely dreading it because I thought, will I be able to make myself understood in the way that I... I, I mean, I could hold a conversation about anything. I used to beat them at Scrabble in German. <laughs> um, but it was fine. I mean, it takes you a couple of days to really get back into the swing of it. Uh, but, yeah. Um, so you got back and you did your degree. Your degree was in? German and teaching English as a foreign language at the University of Stangler in Norwich. Then you ended up in politics. So how did that happen? <laughs> Well, I'd always been quite political. My grandmother, who lived with us at home, was quite political. I always remember 
back in, it must have been 1970, yeah, February 1975, I remember running up the stairs, she was ill in bed, telling her that Margaret Thatcher had been elected leader of the Conservative Party, and she burst into tears. I thought, well, that's a bit weird. And it only dawned on me that the reason she did that was because she'd always been a bit of a feminist, I think. She, she, again, a bit like me, in the 1920s, or maybe late, yeah, about the early 1920s, had broken out of this family of 12, again, farming background, in a little village very near where I grew up, actually, and she'd gone to work for the post office in London. She worked when Wembley Stadium first opened. She worked there. Now, for a single female to do that, in, in, she would have been 24, 25 at that time, again, was something quite big. And she couldn't believe that a woman could have been elected leader of the Conservative Party. And she, she told me once, she said, never trust the Labour Party because they always spend more money than they can afford. And Michael Foote's a communist. Well, the first one was certainly true. Uh, and she kind of, I suppose, woke my political interest. Well, you're a big fan of Margaret Thatcher, so did that play into that? Well, I wasn't to begin with. Um, I actually joined the Liberal Party in 1978, and then I, it must have been Margaret Thatcher's 78 conference speech, which I must have listened to, and I thought, well, I agree with every word of that. So I then, um, I didn't join the Tories, I don't think, but at university in 1982, there, there wasn't a Conservative association. And I remember going to a debate in April 1982 about the Falklands War, and I expected it to be someone putting forward the government's point of view and someone saying we shouldn't be going to war, but it was the hard left versus the soft left. And I got progressively more irritated doing this, and in the end I stood up on my hind legs and said my piece, and I thought, oh, I quite enjoyed that. So at the Freshers' Fair at the beginning of my second year, I set up a Conservative society and much to my astonishment, we got more members than the Labour equivalent did. Now, they, the Labour Party thought it was great because instead of fighting the Trotskyites, they could now fight proper Tories. And I had an absolute ball. We would invite cabinet ministers up to speak. We'd do debates. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And that was kind of my political blooding, I suppose. And then I got a job after I left university as one of the first um, I was going to say kids in my year, I wasn't a kid, I was 22 <laughs> at the time, in my year to get a job, and it was as a researcher in Parliament. And the, this sort of imposter syndrome really started from then, because I remember on my first day, I was walking through one of the corridors and encountered President Ford walking along with ex-Prime Minister Jim Callaghan. And I did think to myself, what's a boy from Essex like me doing in a place like this? And I still have that feeling today i mean like even when we're doing cnn talk mm. i sort of think wow i'm kind of <laughs> i'm on cnn and how's that happen I'm sure a lot of the viewers think that too, is there a fear associated with that do you think a fear of being a you're not being caught out because we only ask you about subjects that you're qualified to speak to really or, or qualified to study and it doesn't feel to. like that sometimes at the beginning of the show max but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um i i think there is a sense of being fat i mean I, i'm like that with my writing in the I used to do a fortnightly column for the Daily Telegraph. I've written hundreds of newspaper columns over the years. But even now, when I press the send button, I always think they're going to send it back to me saying, this is rubbish, start again. Where does that come from, do you think? I think it comes from the fact that I know that I can't write like Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, these, these people who've just got away with words. Because I tend to write as I speak, and I tend to write in a... Like, even on a serious subject, I will try and introduce some humour to it. But I've never felt that my writing has been in any way exceptional. Now, nobody's ever sent it back saying this is rubbish. Um, but I, I, I suppose 
I'm a bit of a jack of all trades in that I, I can do radio, I can do television, I can do writing. And I think I am really good at the radio, but I don't think that I'm not as good at writing as I am at the radio. But it's just a different type of writing, isn't it? That's the reality. And you do have a lot of people that follow your writing. So by definition, you're a good writer. But you can't convince yourself well, of that. I suppose so. I, I just think I, I like the short, snappy things. I don't like writing. I mean, I've just been commissioned... News writing. I've just been commissioned to write a 3,000-word profile of a cabinet minister by the... I better not say who it is. Um, it's coming out in November. So I've got two months to do this. And I have done this sort of thing before. And each time I've done it, I've been really pleased. And I, I mean, recently I went back to look at... I did a profile of David and Ed Miliband back in 2009. And that was about 4,000 words. And I went back recently and read it. And it's when you read something that you've written 10 years mm. ago, it, it's not you that's written it. You're, you're reading it as if it was somebody else. And I thought, actually, you know, this was quite good. And I was the first person to tip Ed Miliband to succeed Gordon Brown. So it did have a point to it. But I like writing diary column stuff where you can put a bit of humour mm. in it. That's why I think my blog, in, and that's where I really, I suppose, first became publicly known because of my blog. I was one of the first people in Britain to do a political blog. And first movers always have an advantage over people that follow. And so I got a lot of political punditry work out of that blog. But it would be literally five, six, seven stories a day, each maybe only ten lines long. And some of it was journalistic reporting, other, but most of it was opinion stuff. And, of course, we were looked down on by mainstream media journalists who thought, well, who are these people sort of sitting in their bedrooms writing sort of at 10 o'clock at night? Um, but, of course, everybody then followed suit and blogging became part of the mainstream media and, of course, has now been succeeded by Twitter. And you're one of the most followed political voices in the country. People will follow you very closely. When Theresa May was speaking the other day, everyone was following, you know, what you thought might come out of the speech, for example. So you are this very powerful voice, but you're this authentic voice as well. You, people know what you stand for. They know that you're saying what you believe. Do you think that's a big part of your appeal? I don't know. It's probably right for others to say. I, I think... Brexit has given me a bit of a platform that maybe was missing before in that I do get invited onto a lot of programmes that before I might get on a few times but not very often. Newsnight, for example, which I always used to frustrate me when they'd have this sort of learned panel of people and I'd think, well, I, I quite like to do that. But it was always the same people. And now people say that about me and that I'm always on Newsnight. And I did ask one of the producers once, well, why are you asking me on so regularly? Surely there are other people you could <laughs> choose. <laughs> um, and they said, yeah, but you're the thinking man's Brexiteer. And I thought, oh, OK. And I sort of thought, well, it's because I don't... I think on Twitter... I do have a bit of a different persona in that I'm quite shouty on Twitter and quite argumentative, whereas on TV, and possibly to a lesser extent on radio, I'm not so in your face. I, I will try and maintain a sort of calmness at all times, which on social media, I mean, I, I kick myself sometimes. I think just count to 10 before you actually post that, and I, I don't mm. obey that rule often enough. And I think people on Twitter sometimes get a slightly wrong impression of, of me because I do play up to the sort of rather shouty elements sometimes. Uh, when you talk about, you know, that, that fear, if I can describe it as that, pressing the publish button on some of your longer pieces, what, what makes you able to go through that? I'm just thinking for people listening who can recognise that and they actually don't press the button and they worry about that. What is it that goes through your mind? to? to just well, think, in, in the end... 
certainly in the UK, I think most of us have a fear of failure. Whereas if you think about the United States, business failures are to a penny in the United States, and you just learn from it and move on to the next one. Here, if you have a business failure and then you start up again, people won't give you credit. They don't. They they they, they just don't look at you in the same way. And I think to an extent, it's a bit like that in the media, where if you do something. Um, if you write something that isn't sort of up to scratch, uh, I mean, you can get over that. If you do a bad interview or... I, mean, I remember once in the early days, I was on Sky News doing the paper review and I completely dried up. And I just... I just I'd, every I'd, broadcaster's Well, it is, and it's never happened, never <laughs> happened since. But I remember I'd got in my head what I was about to say and then the presenter came to me and I just said... I'm really sorry, I forgot what I was about to say. And she, she did it, she, I think it's Lorna Dunkley, she was brilliant, and she said, yeah, that happened to me when I was interviewing Jack Straw the other day. So, I mean, and it, it, it does happen, but they never invited me back on the breakfast version of the pay-per-view. But I, I did, like, 15 years on the evening version. Um, and you just have to get over things like that. But the fact that you went through it and survived it probably helps you when that sort of feeling comes over you again in future because you've been through the experience and you survived. Yeah, and it's like on the radio. When I The first programme I ever broadcast on LBC back in 2009, the phone box system went down, which is where you, have, you go to the callers. So I had to talk for 10 minutes. And... It was rubbish. It was just gabbling, basically. And at the uh, at the end of the ten minutes, when we were going up to the news, I just said, "Well, that was a bit rubbish, wasn't it? Let, let's hope we do better in the next hour." Because I thought, "Well, they must. All the listeners must have thought it was rubbish." Of course, I listened back later, mm. and it wasn't rubbish at all. But in my head, it was complete rubbish. And now I know if if I have to talk for a long time, and sometimes you do, uh, what you do is you slow your speech down a little bit to give your brain enough time to connect with your mouth. Whereas if you're talking at this kind of speed, well, you yeah. can see what, what might happen. So you, you kind of teach yourself how to do this. So it never panics me now if the producer says in my ear, well, the guest isn't ready yet, won't be for five minutes, or the phone system's gone down. Well, that's kind of when you earn your money. Um, what are you aiming at ultimately? Do you have a grand plan, or do you just sort of go with whatever opportunities come up before you? I, I don't have a grand plan because I think people who do very often don't achieve it. I mean, when I was at university, I had two ambitions. One was to be a member of parliament and one was to be a radio presenter. Um, I stood for parliament. I had a go. The electorate fought back. And and I I've, haven't done it since. Now, there are various reasons for that. Um, and it's not going to happen. I mean, that's it. The, in any other country, at my age, you would be going into politics. But in this country, if you're not in politics or in, in national politics by the time you're 40, 45, forget it. So I'm not going to flog a dead horse. I would have liked to have done it. I think I would have been good at parts of it. I think I would have been a whip's nightmare because I would have been very rebellious and, and therefore probably wouldn't have been a minister. And you have to be a minister to really achieve anything. Um, but eventually, at the age of 48 I did get my own radio show now I wish I'd been able to do it 10 years before, or even 20 years before um, because I now know that it's what I was put on this earth to do and, that, and not many people can get through their life and say that well poli you know going into politics is one thing having a, your own show perhaps could to deliver the sort of influence that you wanted anyway so this is an alternative as opposed to the 
the plan of going to I politics. I think it, it, it certainly gives me what politics used to give me in that it gives me that sort of adrenaline rush. Politics is a bit of a virus. You can never quite shake it off. And I did, in the 2017 election, I nearly stood in Saffron Walden where, or tried to stand in Saffron Walden where I grew up because I thought, well, this is the last chance. But for 24 hours, I was sort of umming and ahhing about it. And in the end, I did the classic thing, wrote down the pros and cons, came up with four pros and 15 cons, decision made. And I, and I, I don't regret that at all. Um, but radio is, I mean, it is an adrenaline rush. It's an immense privilege to actually speak to hundreds of thousands of people for three hours every day. And particularly when you're covering, well, you know, this, covering breaking news. I mean, that's, what, that's mm. when you earn your money. And I remember when Lee Rigby was murdered on the streets of Woolwich. That was I'd just been doing drive for three hours, three three months at that point. And at the end of that program, that was the first time when I really thought to myself, "Yep, you can do this," because one word out of place on a breaking news story on terror. Or you can lose your job, basically. But also, you were delivering information that people needed to know, and your listeners would have been yeah. concerned about the security in well, that area. Well, they would be. And also, I, I remember, um, and I've written about this, um, just before the programme started, I couldn't understand why my producer was on the phone. I sort of gesticulated, because I hadn't got a clue what I was going to say when I went on air, because it literally only just happened in the previous hour. And he just sort of motioned to me, you know, it's OK, don't worry. Uh, and I thought, well, he must be speaking to someone. Now, I had tweeted earlier in, in the hour, if you saw anything, get in touch. Anyway, this guy, James, followed me on Twitter. I mean, what a coincidence. Followed me on Twitter, got in touch, and Matt, my producer, said to me, right, just go down to the studio, speak to him, that's all you need to do. So I interviewed him for about 10 minutes, and it was quite graphic stuff, which you know, you have to be a bit careful about how much detail you go into, but he was talking about machetes and sort of what was, because he was literally standing three yards yeah. away from it. And this interview went, I mean, Sky News were playing it literally every half an hour for the next 24 hours. I, I got a, a silver Sony award for it, which I, again, I felt really guilty about because it kind of wasn't me. But at the end of the interview, I thought this guy is in shock. And I said, right, stay on the line. I want you to talk to my producer. And we tried to, say, care for him. That's a slight exaggeration, maybe. But we stayed in touch with him for quite a long time because he was in a very bad way psychologically. Mm. His marriage nearly split up over it. They had to move because the media were trying to sort of... And they're putting notes through his box at 2 a.m. in the morning. So when you did that LBC interview, why won't you do mm. one with us? And, I mean, that, that was a, a real experience. And then you have things like when the Malaysian airliner went down over Ukraine... That's the only detail you have, and yet you know you've got three hours where you go into rolling news mode, and you've got to try and make it interesting for the listeners, otherwise they're going to switch off. But you have no information apart from the fact that this airplane Do you still down. get nervous when that breaking news situation happens? I don't get nervous, but there is an adrenaline rush. and you, you kind of, I go from opinionated commentator, where I'm challenging my listeners with my opinions, I go from that to doing, I would hope, exactly what you would do. And I'm not a trained journalist, but I've done it often enough now to know that I can go into that mode at the flip of a switch. But that's another sign of your courage, if I can say that, because what you're not doing is um, running away from it and freaking out. You're actually seeing something that's really important, and rather than getting nervous about it, you're getting, I mean, excited perhaps isn't the right word, but you're reinterpreting it as something positive as opposed to negative. 
Well, you do get excited about it. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but you've constantly got to question what you're being told as to whether it's really happening. Do you remember there was an incident um, in Oxford Street um, just before last Christmas where people thought that was a terror incident? And there was just something in my mind mm. that was telling me, I'm not sure this is what people think it is. So I was very careful not to go into sort of, well, because, I mean, the, of course, a lot of callers hear the word terror and they think Muslim. Mm. And I'm very, very careful on that sort of thing because, well, it's irresponsible if you're, if you're not, to be honest. And um, we, and there's a lot of pressure on you to keep covering something even when you know that it isn't mm. what people think it is. Um, but it is exciting. I'm, I'm not going to say that I want a terror incident to happen every day on the show because I most certainly do not. But I, I love the spontaneity. I love doing... Um, I do the LBC election night coverage mm. or the referendum nights, and that, that gives me an incredible buzz do, doing that. And what pushes you through just the experience of having done it before and knowing what it feels like or just something you, you're proving to yourself? I constantly feel I have to prove not just to myself but to the listening audience that I'm not former Tory candidate Ian Dale. And that, that's... It is an advantage having been involved in politics because I know a lot of people and I know how the system works and I can bring that insight into my commentary. Mm. But even to this, I haven't been a member of the Conservative Party since 2010. But And that this is why people say, oh, you must want to work for the BBC. Well, even if I did, which I don't, because I couldn't do what I do on the BBC, even if I did, they would never employ me because of that party political background. They employ people who've been in the Labour Party, but there are very few ex-conservatives that they will uh, put in hosting a news programme and that's kind of what I do so I don't have any grand ambition I've got a fairly long contract now doing what I do I'll be 59 when that finishes um, I'm not saying I want to retire at 59 but I, I don't TV is not something that I have a great ambition to do a lot more of I really enjoy what I do but I feel radio is where my real talent is not necessarily television. And you've been part of the resurgence, which is LBC. So people are now going from the BBC to LBC, which is interesting, isn't it? But do you think, you know, you've done all you these different things. or listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you've done lots of different things. Would your advice be to take opportunities when they come along or to follow some sort of preset plan? What, what have you learned that you can pass on? I don't think people in the media have preset plans. And if they do, I doubt whether they ever achieve them. You have to look at opportunities when they come along uh, and evaluate them accordingly. When I'd been at LBC for two and a half years, they asked me to take over the Drive Time show. I didn't want to do it, even though obviously Drive and Breakfast are the two primetime shows. I really enjoy doing the evening show because you have a lot more time, it's a little bit more relaxed, you can be a bit more of yourself. Whereas on a drive time show, necessarily, it, it is news-based, it's fairly pacey, you're doing lots of different things in the hour, not just a phone-in. And you can't do some of the subjects at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock that you would do at 9 o'clock. And since I've been back on the evening show, I've done, I've only been doing it, what, three weeks, two weeks, three weeks? Um, but certainly been three phone-ins that I've done at nine o'clock, which I could not have done at drive time because they're... I mean, suicide, for example. I mean, you can't really do that when you've got kids in the car. Um, I, I remember doing a phone-in on male rape. I mean, that's a bit of a challenging one to do. That was one where I thought, will we get a single phone call? Within five minutes, full switchboard of calls. You couldn't do that in drive time. So, But I knew that if I turned that down, that would effectively 
more or less be the end of me at LBC. My contract would finish, then they'd bring in somebody else. So I did it. Um, not not 100% sure whether I'd be any good at it because it's, it's much pacier and I don't have a particularly pacey voice. And James Whale, who had been doing it before, I mean, a broadcasting icon, and I was, I mean, he left LBC and and he was a really good friend of mine. And I mean, I did feel bad about it, but it wasn't my doing. I think he thought it was at the time. And it took us a while to sort of repair that relationship. Um, but once I started doing it, I realized I could do it and really enjoyed doing it. Um, and I did it for five and a half years and quadrupled the, or put, yeah, quadrupled the audience. So I can't have been terrible. No, well, exactly. But you've still got that imposter syndrome. Yeah, I do. You've still got that. Well, because I've got no journalistic training. I've got no broadcasting training. And I think for the Ian Dale of 2018, and I, okay, I had a little bit of profile when I joined LBC, but I wasn't a major league player in political commentary. I was, I was known for my blogging. And I look now, and this is really, I suppose, to demonstrate how far LBC has come, in that now they attract the likes of Eddie Mayer rather than the Ian Dale of, of, of our day. Now, they do take people on who are relatively unknown, but it is much rarer than it used to be. So the opportunities for people in broadcasting in some ways are huge now because, I mean, you can set up your own podcast mm. and become known for that. And there have been lots of examples of people that have done that. Um, but in national radio terms, I think it's much more difficult to break through. Um, thinking back to your charters, you know, in farming as well, and your sort of your concerns about financial security, even though, as you say, they're perhaps not as relevant now as they are then. Is that something that you will will continue to drive you as well? Do you think that even if you did have lots of money and you had this big salary, you'd still be driven towards that financial security because of what you grew up with? If, if I run the lottery tomorrow, I can't imagine that I'd be one of these people who says, oh, I'm not going to work tomorrow. Um, because I do absolutely enjoy what I do. I enjoy working with the people that I work with and doing all of the TV stuff. Um, so I'm not driven by money to that extent. I think I'd easily fill my days. I've got so many box sets I haven't seen. I've got so <laughs> many books that I haven't read. So um, I wouldn't be particularly worried on that basis. But I do, I suppose one little worry is that I, I know so many examples, and this is particularly people who have been in business and in the city, that they retire and they literally don't know what to do mm. the next day, and then they die three months yeah. later. And that's always... So I've always thought about that and thought, well, I can't really ever imagine giving up work totally. I mean, I might end up doing something completely different. I have thought, well, if LBC finished tomorrow, what would I do? And there's two things that I've thought about doing. One, actually going back into teaching. I, I've become very grandly now I'm a visiting professor at the University of East Anglia so I sort of set that up I could go and do that I suppose um, teaching in a school actually I think it'd have to be sixth form because I, I don't fancy the thought of teaching 13 14 year olds particularly um, or working for the missing people charity which fascinates me the phenomenon of people who just go missing and never to be seen again what what motivates them why have they done it um, so that's something that I've sometimes thought about doing I'm sure you'll achieve it as well. <laughs> well, we, we, we won't know for another couple of years anyway. So, Ian, thanks for speaking to me. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>